Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests, Amit Mukherjee of NEA and Kyle Doherty of General Catalyst. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Excited to be here. Really excited. Thanks, Eric. Awesome. So Amit, Kyle, I want to ask you guys both to introduce yourselves, how you sort of situate yourself within the investing world, how you think about your individual expertise. And then I want to start getting into your firms because General Catalyst and NEA are both enormous firms uh, that have sort of different approaches to how they do venture. General Catalyst in the last few years has has made a number of moves to, to scale and grow. And NEA has been you know, one of the biggest franchises for, for quite some time. So I'm curious what your firms think differently uh, about the world that has uh, lent themselves to come to the conclusions that that you guys have. Uh, maybe, Amit, we could start with you on a, uh, an introduction and then with you, Kyle. Uh, I've been at NEA for almost my entire career. I uh, have been there almost eight years now, and um, I started as an associate and uh, was promoted to partner a couple years ago. And over that time, very quickly became um, exclusively focused on consumer investing. I uh, was fortunate to be involved with um, some amazing companies that we got to invest in at an early stage. Masterclass, Masterclass um, uh, is one I'm really close to. Uh, I led the diligence for our investments in Robinhood and Uber and Snap. I now sit in the boards of uh, Block Renovation and Stockwell. Um, so I've really gotten to see a lot, probably about 25 different investments um, over um, my time there. Kyle, how about you? Been with General Catalyst for a little over two years. I've had a bit more of a fortuitous path. I started my career as a uh, equity research analyst on Wall Street, covering huge mega cap tech companies, and then uh, switched my career up and went into early stage venture. That was about ten years ago. Spent two years at a, a firm called Morgan Thaler Ventures, which is now called Canvas Ventures. I work with the folks that are doing early stage internet investing. When um, I got approached by uh, two brothers that ran a big uh, hedge funds based in New York, but were looking to start doing private investing called Kotu Management uh, back in 2012. Uh, really, really liked what they had to say. I thought they were both, you know, quite smart on uh, what they wanted to do strategically and, um, you know, their investment prowess. So I jumped on board and helped launch the Kotu private investment funds back, uh, you know, I guess it was now seven years ago. Uh, spent over five years there, focused on mid and late stage internet companies. Uh, helped lead the U.S. piece of that practice and then joined General Catalyst two years ago as part of that expansion uh, you mentioned earlier to kind of help GC focus more on later stage venture and really leverage the relationships uh, they have at the early stage and uh, you know expand up and, and do later stage investing. It's interesting, you know, Coats is going earlier, GC is going later. And, and, and it's happening in a number of different places. What's easier, going earlier or going later? Where's the, where's the moat? Or like, how, how, do, how do we think about this? They're both really hard, yeah. I would yeah. say. M- multi-stage investing is not for the faint of heart. The, the characteristics you look for, uh, the type of analysis, and I use you know, quote marks around that at early stage is quite different than you do at later stage. Um, so it's pretty rare the animal that can actually do multi There are people out there. That, that do it quite well. But uh, to be able to institutionalize it and continue to do it well and remain integrated is incredibly hard to do. Seeing the, uh, you know, general catalyst, we're trying to do it. It's kind of starting from the early. We call it investing from the inside out. So starting kind of inside the belly of the beast, the venture capital system and invests uh, at later stages 
Code 2 uh, is, is taking the opposite approach and moving earlier. Uh, you know, there's positives and negatives to both, and I hope we're both successful with it, but it's, it's not easy. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about data and private investing. And it's something you, you, you guys have thought quite a bit about. Where, where's most exciting to you there? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting. So uh, when you say data, sort of utilizing data sources that are out there and aggregating that up and sort of, I kind of call it the renaissance for private investing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say there's a lot going on there. And it really kind of started on the hedge fund side of, of the world, uh, you know, buying access to credit card data, uh, you know, app download data. There's a whole variety of things that are out there that are applicable to private companies. Trying to see what's going on either at a macro level or even a very uh, specific level of companies to see before anybody else knows that this company is starting to scale really quickly or just have some sort of view on, you know, market share and all variety of those things, um, you know, with a good level of visibility from the outside in. You know, I think there have now been a lot of investments made from the venture ecosystem trying to figure out how to do that the right way. I'm not sure it's really been figured out yet. I don't think that there is a renaissance for venture uh, that has been created yet. And a lot of people are are moving in that direction. If you think about it, there's sort of a couple benefits you get from it. Let's just use credit card uh, data as an example. Uh, You could get visibility to see a company starting to scale before anybody else sees it. That's hard to do, but that could be a nice advantage for you. Where it really helps is diligence. You're looking at a company, you can do a pull of, of data from the outside on credit cards and really kind of roughly assess of, whether what they're telling you is true or not, and use it as sort of some sort of confirmation on that, or look at competitors and see, you know, oh, well, Uber's here, Lyft is here, and you know, roughly get a sense of what that dynamic looks like. Um, and then it also can be used for marketing as well. And I think that's actually the most impactful we're seeing. Companies are, are uh, investment firms are showing up for their first meeting with companies, having already done a whole bunch of work mm-hmm. and saying, we roughly think that you're about this size. You know, your margin profile probably looks like X, Y, Z and, you know, end of meeting, here's our term sheet and being able to move really quickly because they have the comfort ahead of time, having done this outside in work. That's kind of been the most impactful thing I've seen so far. So, uh, Kyle, you know, when I think about being successful in venture, I divide it up into three buckets and I'm sure you've heard this before, but, you know, seeing the deals and getting access to them, picking the deals and then winning them. And, when I heard you talk about how data is applicable, I heard uh, it was applicable in all three ways. It lets you see things faster. It helps you do diligence. It helps you win. But how would you force rank where it's most valuable? I think it helps you get access, but not in the way you probably think. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily help you get access sooner than somebody else does, um, You know, seeing the opportunity sooner. But it actually shows if you can package it correctly and show that you're smart on the space. That goes a really long way with founders. Shows, you know, beyond the fact that it shows that you care and you've done the work. It shows that you're knowledgeable and you're expert and you can start your conversation, you know, uh, halfway through where a normal conversation would go because you don't need to cover the basics with them. And being able to message that to a founder to get access and sit down with them goes a really long way because, you know, in many cases, they're hoping to learn something from you. Um, and you sort of, the way I call it, it's a reverse pitch. You as the investor are pitching the company, uh, showing off your knowledge and, and the data and, and all of the work you've done. Um, and it just flips the dynamic and actually is, I think, refreshing for a lot of people running companies. There are uh, some funds uh, in the public markets like a Renaissance that have built massive, massive businesses leveraging data. So what's different about the public markets that makes it harder to apply data 
um, in the private markets. Uh, like why have why hasn't that analogy worked as well? And why are people still trying to figure out versus having mastered it? I would say a few things and I don't know as much about what has been successful on the public side, mostly because I mean, I read the Jim Simon's book and I, I still don't fully understand what they were doing there. Probably very purposeful, secret. right? Yeah, yeah. Of course, purposeful. <laughs> but I would say sort of a lot of it is around fine correlations to price signal and in a public market, or I guess I'd call a more liquid market, there's price signal every day. And there's systems that you can draw correlations from that are tracking data with much, much higher frequency and volume that you can draw those correlations from. So you know, that has a big difference and a big impact on how you can quickly make money. As opposed to the private market, there's a price signal once every nine months for a private company raising money. You know, It's really hard to draw any sort of correlation there. It's also hard because uh, it's hard to keep a secret here. It's so relationship-based. People figure out pretty quickly what you're doing. So if you have access to a data set that others don't, you know, good luck from the word leaking that that's out there. And then next thing you know, there's an off the shelf product being sold that is basically repackaging what you thought was some sort of an advantage before. Just a bit harder. Not impossible, but it is definitely something that uh, I think differs pretty substantially what you're seeing with you know, the Renaissance, DE Shahs, and those guys of the world. Yeah. I mean, I've spent a lot of time not necessarily making my own data sources, but trying to find uh, data software and data sources that I can purchase or get access to in different ways to help NEA get smarter. And I think what I've found is that while it can be helpful on the margin to benchmark a company's retention or their app store downloads versus another company, um, typically the the network of Silicon Valley moves faster than those data sets uh, allow. You know, uh, a lot of times there's a lag of a month or two months between a credit card survey data set that uh, we might want to buy. And uh, by that time, someone at the company has already told their advisor who's already told four venture firms. So uh, I found that it can be helpful. And we certainly are constantly examining and considering which ones to use and are always subscribing to three or four. But I haven't found that it's made uh, such a massive difference that we would shift our entire approach to invest very aggressively and also um, make uh, investment decisions largely based on that data, which I think uh, firms like Renaissance do. Mm, yeah, I, I would say I think you're spot on. I think that the the gossip circles work at a much quicker speed to understand what's working and what's not um, in the venture ecosystem. I would say then that would lead you to believe that having an early stage fund could be a competitive advantage if you're doing later stage investing as well. Um, because if that's the realization you have, C, A, B investors, a lot of that is relationship-based. It is gossip-based. Is hearing from these firms or from these operators which companies are starting to scale, that gives you an edge to know sooner. Yeah. And I think you know the point that you made about when I come to a first meeting highly prepared for it and have access to data and helping uh, share information with a founder that they don't have, it's really helpful in the sell process and could certainly help me win a deal um, that I wouldn't otherwise win because I come across as smarter and more thoughtful and can move faster. And that's great. I think what uh, I haven't seen data uh, do as successfully is have uh, a fund approach a founder and say, hey, I uh, have a data set that's proprietary and an algorithm that said that you're the best company out of 2000 I ran through the algorithm. So can I lead your series A? You know, that doesn't really work, right? I think at the end of the day, 
what founders are looking for is someone who really believes in them and will serve as an advisor or a great board member, at least in the way that uh, venture is structured today. So, and usually the marquee companies do typically fall into that traditional venture pattern. So I think that's one of the big constraints where because it is illiquid and because of the way that venture is structured, it usually comes down to um, a founder picking a board member rather than in the public markets where um, someone can write an algorithm and just say, hey, these are the 15 out of a thousand companies I screened that I want to invest in as a result of this algorithm that I back tested. I think it's really hard to replicate that. Yeah. And if that algorithm did exist, I suspect that the characteristics it would look for wouldn't be too different from what great investors look for anyways. Yeah. So you just be basically replicating what a lot of people who've been in this business kind of already know already. Some of the basics around what makes a good team, what makes a good early business model. So, yeah. And then, you know, one, one thing I was thinking about on the way over here was if we look at all the sectors that venture capital invests in software and consumer and hardware oriented business and SMB oriented business, uh, businesses, are there certain sectors where data can be more applicable than other sectors? Um, are there certain data sets out there that are easier to leverage and move faster on than, than others? Yeah, I would say I think to date, a lot of the advancement folks have made on data in the private tech investment market has been credit card based, which is consumer businesses are using credit cards, B2B companies. There are some instances where something like a Slack gets adopted and, you know, they start paying with their credit card to start. But over time, it moves to invoicing and just the payment mechanism changes. So it tends to be more effective for the consumer segment of the markets. And as you said, there's still lags and all that uh, involved with that data. So it, it hasn't necessarily um, proven to be um, a huge advancement with you know finding out sooner necessarily. I would say it's very specific. There might be companies yeah. that are uh, related to certain data sets for advertising, uh, you know, things like auto sales data and a whole variety of those that do relate to specific types of companies. Right. But it tends to be very niche. You know, there is no catch-all, one-size-fits-all type of data that can, you know, really kind of capture all of that. Yeah. At least that I have seen yet. Yeah. I've also heard of a bunch of data strategies uh, that have not necessarily been put into practice, but uh, or have been put into a practice in not a huge way um, that have been interesting. Um, I've heard a lot of venture capitalists suggest that, oh, maybe we can leverage LinkedIn data where we'll look at a founder and if they've connected with three of our competitors, then we'll automatically reach out or we'll scrape the LinkedIn to look at, we'll have a ranking of the the jobs that people have had to, you know, get a sense of their engineering team immediately, or we'll scrape GitHub. Um, uh, have you heard of any other creative ideas like that that you think are cool or could work? Well, I, I check in every morning and see who Eric Tornberg's following. Yeah. <laughs> and see, uh, it gives me a real heads up on what the most interesting next generation yeah, company is. No doubt. <laughs> Um, I mean, Twitter follows and Twitter lists and things that need. I think a lot of people are actually aware of this. And so actually some people explicitly do not LinkedIn connect with companies they're talking right. to because they don't want to send that signal out. The same thing with Twitter. They will not follow the people that they're the most interested in and maybe create a side account or something like that. Yeah, for anyone who's mad that I'm not following them. That's <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, those are things out there, and I think that is you know potentially impactful. Uh, I don't know that that has actually worked better than you know just hearing about it through the gossip circles or through a, a network of connections and operators. Um, but yeah, 
I mean, I, I think that that is something that is being used for sure. Yeah, I think my takeaway, having spent a lot of time evaluating these data sources and actually building processes at NEA of using them and looking at them on a weekly basis is, uh, firstly, just because we have access to a proprietary data source, unless we're making a disciplined habit of building it into our workflow and saying, hey, we're going to look at what's going on in the app store rankings every single week. We're going to look at this credit card survey data and track this market every single week. Um, it, it really uh, is very hard to uh, get conviction in a data set and then move on it. So I find that even when we have data sources that we trust and rely on and are really excited about the amount of human effort that it takes and the amount of uh, discipline it takes from our side is just about the same as if we, we didn't have it. And if we wanted to approach that sector with that level of time and attention, we probably could find that same um, information otherwise. Um, and then secondly, you know, I think um, compared to the, the public markets where there's a huge uh, set of data, and I think those algorithms can pick a few companies to invest in out of thousands and thousands, or um, even in the real estate sector where a lot of the assets that people are investing in are more commoditized. I think there's just so much nuance in um, early stage investing. And by early stage, I mean even Series B, Series C investing uh, in terms of evaluating team uh, founders. There's so many differences in business models. There's so many risks that we're, um, we're, we're trying to evaluate. Uh, there's probably 20 or 25 different types of risk that we're thinking about and do so intuitively. I think those are very, very hard to capture by any data set. And like Kyle said, I think most of the data innovation I've seen has been around credit card survey data. And that's so limited compared to all the things that we're thinking about in terms of markets, in terms of founders that um, even though we put a lot of investment into it, I, you know, I, I, I would imagine that I'd say that right now it makes maybe a 10% difference in our process. And it certainly doesn't uh, replace the judgment. And, um, and I, I could be, you know, uh, one of the dinosaurs of venture capital here saying, I don't want my judgment outsourced to an algorithm. And, but, um, uh, I would say that I, I'd say right now that uh, data allows for maybe a 10%, maybe a 20% improvement if there's a huge investment. And even that requires a tremendous amount of discipline. And ultimately, I think if a team is that disciplined to to implement data successfully, there's a lot of things that they do to be successful. Now, having said all this, there could be somebody out there that we just don't even know about who's using data in some spectacular way and doing really well and finding things before anybody else investing and in 10 years will end up being the top one. We just don't know. Yeah. Right. So well, my question was, who's, who's done the closest to something interesting here? Is it like social capital during the eight ball? I guess now, now tribe. Is it uh signal fire? Is it, you know, what are you guys doing? A general catalyst. And if we're here 10 years from now talking about sort of the state of venture is it going to look radically different as it relates to how data is evolved or is it kind of look like the same? I would say the biggest, this doesn't directly answer your question, but the biggest step forward I think might be the opportunity to use data to create different forms of financing. Um, so rather than a standard, perfect example, ClearBank, um, there are things you could be doing with subscription business models and providing working capital, just having a plug into their systems of record. Um, I think we're very early in those things being explored. Because there's so much data being created by companies, you can use that to effectively come up with some sort of rating or uh, a means of underwriting them for different forms of financing. Because it's actually less that 
you might have a venture firm find a nice data source that takes them to the promised land of finding the next Facebook type investment. And it could be more so that a new venture firm pops up providing not just your standard series A equity check to get their 20%, but some form of debt or something like that, that just looks different and feels different than what we've seen before. Yeah. I mean, I would say that there are certainly funds out there that have uh, marketed using data as um, a proprietary advantage. I would say that the firms that have been most successful have um, had some um, very original idea behind what data they're looking for. And without that original idea, I think it's hard to make data useful. You you always have to know what hypothesis you're going after. So the thought that comes to mind and they haven't done anything in, in this generation that I'm aware of that um, leads to super unique data usage. But when I think about Tiger Global and their thesis of, hey, you know, we have Googles and Facebooks here in the U.S., let's find them all over the world and then use data to um, to find those companies. Um, I, I think that was a, a huge return and massively successful. But I would emphasize that it started with uh, that original thesis idea, then data is used to then support it. I think Kyle's right. You know, if we widen the aperture of what investing is and move out of this sort of narrow uh, lean of the venture capital asset class and uh, firms like General Catalyst and NEA that really focus on leading deals and think more about uh, some of these online businesses, um, insurance, uh, lending. Um, I think that's where we can see uh, data used in a proprietary way. I would point out, though, that even today with um, all of the online lending businesses and all of the online insurance business businesses, most of them have not started to use a unique data asset and underwrite in a way that's materially different than the way that financial institutions today do. It definitely feels like there is an opportunity to do that. Um, and I imagine that could look very different in 10 years. And frankly, I hope that it does because I think there's an opportunity to give a lot more people access to capital that uh, aren't finding it through traditional metrics. Um, but I, I would imagine that it's more likely to penetrate other asset classes like that before it penetrates venture for some of the reasons we described about uh, before. Uh, transaction costs are high. The data set that we're using, the way we're making decisions is is more qualitative. So I think we're going to see innovation in other areas of investing before VC. Yeah, that makes sense. So we transition over to, to crossover investing. You know, we've seen sort of hedge funds invest in private, private invest in public. How, how do we think about uh, that and, and where that's gone? Yeah, I'd say uh, you first started... This has been an activity probably for decades in the you know, tech e ecosystem. But you've seen sort of an acceleration, probably starting about seven, eight years ago. I think there was a confluence of factors that came up that sort of led a lot of public funds down the road of accessing the private markets. Namely, companies are waiting longer to go public um, mm -hmm. and doing it at a later stage. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head. It was Facebook when it went public, 80 billion market cap, something like yeah. that in yeah. 2012. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, value creation that happened in the private markets that if you were a public fund, you just did not, you know, you just missed that. Uh, versus a generation previously, Amazon went public at 400 market cap. Now it's a trillion. A lot of value creation on the public side that you could participate in and not only a hedge fund, but a mutual fund, pension fund, you know, you name it. That really, that push really started, you know, in earnest in the last decade. And, you know, there were a couple of what I would call buckets of investors. There's the mutual funds, the Fidelities, uh, the Wellingtons of the world. There were the hedge funds starting with Tiger Global and now Co2 and a whole variety of other uh, smart investors. 
kind of moving in, there's also sort of a variety of what I call new styles of funds that are popping up um, as well. So uh, this is something I kind of call them like global funds and SoftBank kind of falls in that. They're actually their own category to a certain extent, but it falls into that that bucket as well, uh, DST as well. So the later stage has gotten much, much more competitive in the last uh, several years. And I think uh, the style of investing seems roughly similar amongst a lot of those players. Um, so, you know, harder to win deals, harder to get better pricing and all that. Um, it's a trend we're going to continue to see unless for whatever reason companies do want to go public earlier. You know, it's just, you're missing out on a lot of return as a public market investor. You, you almost in many ways need to have access to those, those companies. I think it's really interesting. You know, when I look at, uh, IPO prospectuses from the nineties, wow, these companies or some of them could be series B's and series C's today. And so the level of risk appetite in the public markets changed dramatically. I would probably uh, attribute a lot of it to Sarbanes-Oxley and the increased requirements and cost of going public. And and also there was a consolidation of the investment banks. So it was, a, it was very quickly a, a much smaller number of companies that were actually deciding to go public. And right around the same time, the intersect, internet sector was starting to build these really big businesses. And so there was this very special window of time where these funds like Tiger Global and DST, who understood the internet business model better than most and also recognized this gap in the market markets that was created uh, really were extremely successful investing in some of these uh, companies. Uh, like Kyle said, I think that's getting harder by the day for a number of reasons. One is that almost every fund is getting bigger. And so uh, uh, funds that were traditionally just early stage are now doing late stage. Uh, the mutual funds have now also started to invest in that sector. And then more hedge funds have entered that sector. And more funds that are specialized have popped up. So I'd imagine that the amount of funds and capital dedicated to investing in that asset class is probably what? 3x, 5x, 10x over the last like 10 years. Um, and then I'd also say that there's more consolidation in thinking around how to evaluate these businesses. So there's less of an opportunity for someone to say, hey, I'm not as worried about revenue and I know how to think about the value of a user on Facebook and how they might monetize over time. I feel like Lots of people have figured out that sort of logic and seven or eight years ago, that was much less frequent. So, um, I think that, that, that market is one that has become quite competitive and quite, quite interesting, but, but really, um, in a lot of ways, much tougher today than say six or seven years ago. Yeah. There, there's an interesting thing. Actually, if you look in the, uh, more in the healthcare and sort of the biotech pharma segment of the market, you actually do see a lot more crossover mm-hmm. activity. I would argue it's probably, you know, ahead of where the tech market yeah. is with regards to that. And so you see a lot more public investors going earlier, doing private investments. Companies are going public earlier because, you know, there's a, a lot of guidelines and understanding around going through the FDA process. What's that look like when you go through the different stages? And, um, you know, the lines are a bit more blurred. Yeah. Tennessee. And we actually have a really robust healthcare practice. Um, and, uh, we see that for them, the IPO is really treated as another financing opportunity and the level of risk that, that, uh, those investors are taking is very, very different than the level of risk that the typical public tech investor is taking. So a lot of times NEA is an investor in, um, in the IPOs of our healthcare companies much more frequently than is the case on the tech side. 
where's this all going? Let's say we're back here in, in 10 years reflecting um, on, on the previous 10 years. How do you expect this to, to shake out or how, how could it play out relative to the last decade? Yeah, I think we'll see normal cyclical ups and downs, but the secular trend is just so darn strong in you know consumer and enterprise software in a whole variety of areas going digital that in 10 years, like we're just going to be seeing larger and larger companies get built and more of them yeah. and across the globe as well, not just the US. Later or earlier or same? That's, that's a hard one for me to call, uh, especially with, you know, we're seeing a variety of tools pop up that enable liquidity without really going. So what Carta is doing, and there's a variety of, of companies sort of creating secondary markets while still remaining private. Those really take holds. There may be situations where you don't need to ever really go public to provide that liquidity. Now there's some SEC regulation around that, and that still needs to kind of get calcified and figured out over time. But generally speaking, you assume that the right thing happens there. You know, maybe you see more companies that never go public, but I think for right now, there are benefits to doing it even outside of providing liquidity for employees, early investors. You know, it gives you a soapbox to get on and talk about your business. It brings credibility when you're selling to your customers. There are a lot of benefits that people tend to overlook and that will continue to be the case. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see that keep happening. You know, it, it seems to me if you follow the current trends that you will see fewer companies accessing the public market relative to the overall universe. But there will still be quite a few that will access. It's a broader question of as an industry, should we be encouraging uh, companies, more companies to go public and making that process better? I'm an investor in long term stock exchange, for, for example, is try, trying to do do that. Or should we be offering or encouraging more services like Carta um, that are trying to bring liquidity and, and bring some of the benefits of going public so that these companies don't have to? You know, I, I would say that. Uh, it's it's really hard to answer. Um, I, I think the best way to think about it is, hey, let's let's take the emphasis on going public and the IPO and really just think about what does the IPO allow. And it allows for three things. One, it uh, creates more liquid markets. Uh, the second is it allows a much more democratic uh, group uh, access to capital. And number three, it creates uh, uh, just better clarity around governance. Um, and I think I would imagine that all three of those things are just going to happen anyways. You know, markets become more efficient over time for the most part. Um, I, I do think that um, uh, particularly uh, tech companies will continue to get the attention of the government. But I think I, either the private markets will find a solution such as Eric's long-term stock exchange or the public markets will, will find a solution. But I would imagine that um, increasing visibility into governance, um, increasing liquidity, and increasing access to capital is probably the, the broad-term trend that I would bet on. And this is why some people were excited about crypto. Um, yeah, for sure. You were saying early on, because venture is illiquid, you know, crypto brings liquidity, it allows people to, uh, you know, multiple people to get, it sort of bypasses the regulations <laughs> that we have around accredited investors, th things like that. And, but some people might counter and say, no, no, the illiquidity is what makes venture special. Uh, for for a bunch of a bunch of other reasons, I'm curious if you have a. What do you what do you why do you think that people think the illiquidity makes special? Because it's more reliable. Capital people aren't just sell, you know selling right. left and right. Um, you can um, yeah so long term in that sense more stability as it relates to to building your business. Uh, people invested for the long term if they can just cash out at any time. Might employees leave a lot quicker? Or founders leave a lot quicker? Or or venture capitalists take their money? Out earlier, yeah. I think I think one of the big questions is 
should governance and investing be tied together? Um, and, you know, I've, I've seen some really smart people in the ecosystem like Alad say, hey, the skill set of being a good board member is very different than the skill set of being an investor. Why don't these things get unbundled over time? You know, I think from my perspective, there's great alignment. And hey, if we own a significant percentage of company, um, um, we're going to be the most motivated to make sure that um, the the company operates appropriately. So I very much believe that we take our role as board member really, really seriously at NEA, and we're constantly educating ourselves on um, how to do that um, as effectively as possible. But I'd be curious to hear if you guys are uh, have a similar uh, position and think that that alignment of or that tying of you know a venture capitalist leading around and taking a board seat like should that be the way that it works as with anything the answer is probably it depends yeah. right there are certain circumstances where the right match of a good vc or in particular a good vc partner with the right company can provide a lot of value that wouldn't be provided by anybody else out there the long-term view and enabling a company to take risks i do believe is true and you know you mentioned uh, long-term stock exchange is sort of one of your investment like the whole idea and concept is let's get rid of the short-termism. You know, the quarterly earnings report and having volatile stock moves around that when you're investing for five years plus down the road, why does that need to exist in the current format that it does? There's some real wisdom in that, I think. That wisdom is implicit and automatically built into the private equity system and the venture capital system. So, you know, I do think that there is something to that, but there's always circumstances where there are counterexamples to that. And, you know, bootstrap businesses figure it out on their own and they could have a liquid market and don't have to worry about getting any help from investors or they've created their own board of advisors, whatever that might be. So uh, I think the, the short answer is it's not one size fits all, but uh, generally speaking, the venture capital, private equity, you know, the structures and, and what it enables seems to roughly generally work pretty well. Um, there are bad stories and there are bad circumstances that happen, but you know, it has uh, produced quite a few amazing companies over the, the course of many generations. And so uh, does it need innovation? Absolutely. Are there incremental improvements that could be brought to it? Sure. But you know, I don't think that wholesale changes and shifts are going to happen overnight that will be successful. Yeah. I mean, I we definitely spend a lot of time thinking about how do we be good board members and we take the role seriously. And, you know, I, I think one thing that's unique about NEA and Kyle was talking about GC being multi-stage. I think actually NEA and uh, GC in terms of being multi-stage out of one fund, we're actually two of the most similar in terms of fund structure out of, out, out of anyone. And so I've had uh, the benefit of um, doing everything from incubations all the way up to uh, uh, pre-IPO investments. And one of the things that we've started to lean towards is taking board seats, um, even for our seed investments, where I think a lot of the seed market today um, sort of says, oh, we'll worry later about about creating a governance structure and it's too early now. And, you know, I think what I've seen having done um, quite a few seed investments personally is that for the companies that we set up a regular cadence of meeting once every six weeks, sort of saying, hey, this is what we plan to do. And uh, I think just the the process of the founder knowing, hey, I'm going to have to present to a board or something that um, acts like a board and uh, put my milestones in front of them. That's just a form of accountability that um, actually helps motivate them to make sure that they stay on track and al allows for a really healthy cadence of feedback. I would sort of um, say it's 
more than more so than us ha- knowing all the answers and having a lot of uh, great ideas on uh, what they should do. It's a, it's a lot more like a personal trainer where, hey, just knowing that I've set an appointment to come and check in with you and, you know, record a progress. I think that's been extremely valuable, you know, to the point where I've seen companies move, say, on average, 50 to 100% faster by having sort of a board or an informal board at the seed stage. And, you know, for any founders out there that are listening, um, whether or not uh, you choose to take on a formal board member at the seed, I would recommend having some sort of at least informal um, get together with key advisors or key investors on um, a, a pretty regular basis, because I think it's just going to help you. It's going to be like your coach or your personal trainer. And I, I think I think that's something that we've seen be really effective. Active. I'm curious, what is the difference between what makes a great uh, early stage, you know, seed or Series A investor versus what makes a uh, a great growth stage investor, say Series B and, and, and much later? And I, I posit that my guess is that sort of growth stage is more about winning than any than at seed, where I think. For example, I don't have to compete with with Bill Gurley on evaluating the best. I mean, it's a bad example because it's a or the best seed of Josh Koppelman at at evaluating the best marketplaces or or evaluating the best companies or winning the best companies. If I see them quicker, if I make a better relationship with them earlier, because there's often undiscovered um, and and one can't see the whole universe of companies. Where at at growth, the companies are are there. They're obvious. There's a lot more data on them. So it, it's harder to have a, a sourcing advantage and it, it, it's harder relative to uh, seed, I guess, at, at, at having an evaluation advantage because there is so much more data on the companies, which makes me think that in competitive markets, really just who is the best brand or, or the best ability to convince the, the founder that you're going to add more value to the company, whereas at seed, that might be different because they never even saw the company to begin with. How, how would you edit my characterization or, or respond to it? Oh, man, it's a great question. <laughs> so, so many thoughts. So I'll... Uh, just, just to, just for clarity, I'll sort of share one thought at a time so that you guys have something to react to. Um, so I was talking to, um, I would characterize him as one of the top five or top 10 venture capitalists of all time. Um, and he told me, uh, that, Hey, for the early stage, the founder really matters and the market also really, really matters at the later stage. Actually, it's okay to have a founder who's not a 10 out of 10 because they already have built the guts of the business and the market is there. And so at that point, we're really taking a bet on the market. So it's interesting to think, um, and it might be actually counterintuitive when we think about it. Hey, I'm investing in a Series C company at a multi-hundred million dollar valuation. I've got to have a founder who's good enough to take it public. But you know, this really uh, talented investor had the opposite view where, hey, it's actually easier at that point to take it from one to 100. We actually need have a higher bar from the people that we're betting on to go from zero to one. So, you know, that, that's the first, I've got a lot of thoughts about this, but I'll just stop with that and see what you guys think of that. Yeah. So the, the, the way I think about it is um, I sort of use this dichotomy of art and science. So at the earliest of stages, it is, it's more of an art. It's like you have good taste in what a team looks like. You have a rough sense of how big the market is. But as you said, there, there's no numbers. You know, a lot of times they're not generating revenue. There is a product. So there's taste around product that matters quite a bit. And, you know, that's the seed and the A stage. That's really kind of what you're looking for. And there's some people who are just great at that. As you get to later stage, there's more science. There's knowing, uh, needing to know what the right analysis to do is, um, you know, how to, put that into a broader context of market sizes and teams, competitive dynamics and all that. But that art never goes away. That art's always there. So if you do have a good sense of 
you know, what a good team, well-functioning team looks like, or what a lot of great late stage investors do is they know early stage investors who have that sense and they get their perspective on that company. Um, that gives you, I think, a pretty nice advantage relative to somebody coming in cold and just looks at the cold numbers and, you know, makes an assessment based off of that. So people who can kind of figure out how to bridge that gap going from an early stage to a late stage company, I think have a bit of an advantage on that. It is competitive at the later stage. It's competitive at every stage these days. There's a lot of capital out there. Finding a differentiated value add is tough. All money's green. And a lot of people tend to think that, you know, series C or later, it's all about getting the highest price. I don't think that's necessarily true. I do think that there are certain uh, investors that can bring a good strategic perspective help bridge the gaps of going public, uh, you know, find good advisors or board members, board composition, finding a good CFO to get you positioned correctly is a really difficult task right now. There's just not a lot of talented people out there. There's a scarcity of it. Uh, anybody that can help along those lines. So it's sort of like the the key things that you help with at the early stage kind of get amplified a little bit at the later stage. And if you're good at that, you're good at that. Um, and you can add value. Now, proving that in a competitive process can be hard sometimes. Uh, but over time, you know, you build brand reputations or built for a reason. And it's proving over over and over again a pattern of being able to help companies get to the next level and succeed. I would say that the specialization at each stage is helpful. And being someone who has invested across many stages, I see how different it can be to invest in a Series C company versus a seed stage company. I remember, you know, one company that we helped incubate, the CEO and founder is Brighton Shang brilliant person. And he's asking, Hey, how do I hire my first engineer? And I'm, I'm sitting there being like, okay, you know, I'm, I know a lot about how to analyze your business, but I've never actually thought about what are those specific qualities, you know? And so it's a good example of, Hey, like, um, someone who is doing that again and again and again, will just have experience and a network that, um, is more helpful to hiring those first 10 employees. And then Kyle pointed out a bunch of things that, um, a lot of seed stage investors just because, not because they're not, not smart enough or anything like that, just because of the reps and what their experience is with. There's all these, uh, different elements of a company that need to be optimized at sort of that series C, series D stage, um, knowing what the financials should look like and helping build the budget with them, um, helping them build up a leadership team, usually through the process of many retained searches and knowing what a great VP who's had 15 years of experience building product or engineering organizations looks like. Uh, same thing for the C-suite, C-suite level. And those are all skills that someone can be better at as well. So um, I think um, any stage that we're investing at, there's a lot of specifics to that stage that it takes a lot of reps to uh, get expertise in it and then also build a network around uh, to help. So I think in addition to just the difficulty, there's also like a, a specific skill set that needs to be built over time. Yeah, there's. I had a, a conversation with the CEO of a company. It's you know a name we would all know, multi-billion dollar uh, valuation, still private. He made a comment to me. He goes, when I was raising my Series A, every firm I met with, you know, had the resources, had the services built to help me go from two to two hundred employees. You know, hiring, thinking about my organizational structure, helping me acquire customer, whatever it is, you name it. You know, the firms could help there. But he said, once I got to on the 200 to 2000 phase, that really disappeared. Um, and it's something I took to heart and sort of thought a lot about what we can do at General Catalyst to improve that. So I'm thinking through different services around providing CFO advisory services. You know, the finance function is the lifeblood of a later stage company. Mm -hmm. 
um, you know, how do you do that and make that best in class? Um, there's a, a real benefit to that for them because it does matters much less when you have 20 people it matters a lot when you've got 2000. Yeah. I think about it in, in, in a little bit different way. Whereas it, it seems to me that the later stage you go as an investor, the more it becomes an efficient market and the more it becomes something more like poker where people are playing the same game. Whereas early stage, and I should say my, uh, my experience is really shaped by my experience at product hunt where I just felt like the game was rigged or, or the earlier you go, the more you can rig the game. And what I mean by rigged was just having been at product hunt. I now had all this uh, access to companies before other people were, were seeing them. Uh, Cause they would say, Hey, we're going to launch in a few months. And it was a programmatic way. I could be lazy and still get this, this inbound in a sort of scalable way relative to individuals uh, trying to do it. And so one on the sourcing side, and then two on the, anyone who was building a social thing or, or valued to, or, you know, uh, had you know startups as their customer really valued product on as a distribution channel, and so I felt like that tool was a unfair advantage for me in a way that allowed the game to be rigged a little bit. And so I was obsessed with, wow, how can I, you know, as someone who struggled in school uh, my my whole life, I was like, I don't want to be in a game where we're all playing the same thing. I want to be in a game where it's just it's it's rigged to get to it so that my execution isn't, uh, doesn't, uh, my outcome doesn't spend solely on my execution where I just have this unfair advantage. And so I was like, how can I build other tools and products and communities and services that give me more advantages there? And to me, it, it seems to go away as, as it gets further up because there's less sourcing advantage and the, the people are just way better. <laughs> I'm curious if any, any reactions to that. I, I think that that concept of, you know, rigging the game or creating an advantage um, is, is sort of what you're seeing happen in the market right now. People yeah. are sort of trying to find their way through the maze of like, how could we recreate what Product Hunt had or Y Combinator has yeah. at the earliest so stages? That's, for example, they're rigging the game. Yeah, yeah like, uh, they've yeah. done a spectacular. It's yeah. an amazing program. Yeah. I would recommend anybody starting a company to go mm-hmm. and, and go through that. Um, I would go that far, but they're they're rigging the game. And so, uh, you know, nobody knows yet what that next step is. Just like 12 years ago, Y Combinator was going, but, you know, kind of hadn't reached the the critical mass that it has today. Um, so it could be a data advantage. It could be people building on some sort of a service or finding a new creative. Or it could be you know, who rigged the game at the late stage with SoftBank yeah. with Vision Fund 1. Uh, they were operating on a scale of capital that nobody else could compete with. And they could do it so quickly that um, they were playing a different game than everybody else. Now, whether yeah. that was successful or not, it's another question. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I would say that there have been very unique ideas and very unique investing strategies at all stages. And there are some. Um, there's that you could look at some of the most successful strategies at the growth stage, and it looks like the game is rigged there too. Being, you know, if you look at. TA and TCV and Insight two decades ago, and they were investing in profitable companies, you know, growing uh, really quickly. And other uh, firms uh, were scared off because they were technology oriented. That looked like a rig game, you know. When yeah. you look at so the, early, yeah, but can you see it? A uh, sorry, is, is the middle where it's hard to rig that? Like, you know, benchmarks. I mean, there's so many. Like, is, is that where it's at? It's most fair, and that's where it's at, it's at most. Um... You know, I think that uh, the way I would categorize it is that, you know, certainly we see a lot of funds competing at the seed and pre-seed stage and more and more incubators being built. And I think there's, you know, 
well over a thousand seed funds now. I think there's hundreds of seed funds getting created every year. At least that was true a couple of years ago. And we're seeing a lot of capital enter that growth stage market and not to give an ad, ad for general catalyst and NEA, but I think there's a pretty small group of funds who have had the experience of lots and lots of IPOs and lots and lots of successful companies and do take board seats yeah. and really help build companies. There is really a very specific playbook that um, is understood by a few people who've been there and done it before, both on the investor side and also on the, on the company side, which is what makes uh, a few firms seem to have magic and what makes Silicon Valley magic uh, is that there are people who just have these playbooks in their, their heads that are very difficult to replicate. Yeah. So I would definitely say that, you know, series A, series B, not to say that, that the, when, when, when we do invest in other stages that we aren't really excited about and there aren't a lot of opportunities there too, but that's certainly sort of a rarefied error where there's, you know, maybe um, a dozen to two dozen uh, funds that really have a competitive advantage. And I'd, I'd put both general catalysts and NEA in that category. Yeah. It tends to start with a lot of times at the later stage with sort of an insight into where the market's heading or what's going around around, going on around the globe. And so just I would say even today, there is a nice advantage from having global visibility. There's great companies being created everywhere around the world. If you know what's happening in China, that gives you an advantage in the U.S. and vice versa. And there's still a very small subset of firms that have that visibility, access, knowledge of both those ecosystems. But that's something that over time will continue to deteriorate as more and more firms figure that out and start doing uh, cross-border investing in a more meaningful way. So. You know, it, it tends to be uh, ephemeral. It's hard to build a structural advantage at the yeah. later stage. Yeah, it's interesting. I, mean, I guess what's what's fortunate is that brand can last for so long mm-hmm. in venture. Like it's once you have something like NEA General Catalyst, it's really hard to lose it. And it takes like even if you mess up tremendously, it takes like a decade plus, uh, and you can get it back. I'm curious. So if we look at some of the venture firms that have the biggest AUM, you know, NEA General Catalyst. Andreessen, I don't know, Founders Fund, Sequoia. I don't know if there's any other names you want to throw in the hat. In terms of how you guys differentiate on a strategy level, you mentioned you guys are, are very similar, but there are others who have different approaches. And I believe GC is doing various different types of structures and even even asset classes, maybe. I social capital was doing a, a lot of real estate, hedge fund, the SPAC or something like, like you know, Ali Hamed came on the podcast, my friend, and he says, um, you know, the future of venture is going to look more like, you know, a franchise model across different asset classes. And you're with Andreessen, you're seeing a little bit crypto, bio, social capital, of course, doing the experiments, as I just mentioned. How, how do you see that see that playing out and, and evaluate the different models or the different ways you can go really big? Yeah, I mean, what I would say is that um, I think from the outside, a lot of people will look at the NEA website and say, oh, hey, that looks like um, a lot of people. This looks like this refined institution with all these strategies, you know, and um, I, w- I would say that on the inside, it really oh, feels no, like <laughs> <laughs> I would say I would say I would say that uh, uh, it really does come down to those uh, individuals and what and they're we're all sort of pursuing our intuition on what to pursue. Um, the markets are moving too quickly, both at 
the ideas that founders are generating and also just the dynamics of the world are changing too fast for any one strategy to work um, in a static way for a really long time. So we're all following our intuition. And, you know, uh, Kyle and I both have talked about how we're sort of shifting our attention and learning about different areas, you know, probably on a quarter by quarter basis. And so when it comes to a founder, um, in the situations where uh, we're competing with another firm that's you know of an equally high caliber, I think it really come just comes down to the connection between that partner and that founder. And uh, uh, most of the time, um, uh, I think founders uh, are find that they'd be lucky to have more than one person who just truly understands their business and is and is passionate about it. And I think at the end of the day, when we look at the surveys, when we talk to to founders about it, you know, all the services aside, all the strategies aside, it just comes down to, does this person believe in me? Do they have conviction in my business? Do they understand it? And that's sort of number one, almost always. Um, And then, you know, I think if you are beneficial enough to have two people who are ultra successful, who are equally passionate about your business, then you can compare, all right, how does the how does the talent port team stack up and how does their yeah, international yeah. team stack I mean, up? Like, yeah. Is NEA going to have a real estate, you know, practice or a, a hedge fund practice or a separate crypto fund or bio? Like, like how do we think about these types of decisions? Yeah. The, the way that we think about it at GC is um, the core of the business has always been and always, always will be the early stage venture practice. And we have a variety of different approaches within that. We hatch companies. We have Rough Draft Ventures, which invests in university students. Yeah, we have seed uh, investing in you know a traditional A and B, Boston, New York, you know all the major uh, ecosystems, Silicon Valley. Um, that's always going to be the core. Anything we do, whether it's adding a new asset class, fund type, whatever it is, needs to be related to using that as sort of a core advantage or sort of think of it just as an offshoot of a branch coming out of that core. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. You know, we're not, we're not doing this just for the sake of trying to get more assets or anything along those lines. This is really about using what we have and what is working really well and building off of it. And so if we can serve an entrepreneur better by providing debt financing or, or whatever their needs might be, and we can do it in-house because we're already investing in the equity, we know the firm, we know the company, we know the management team, so be it. That would be great. That's a nice, nice positive thing for both sides. Um, but if that is not something that ends up being you know helpful, then we won't do it. I would say that there's certain circumstances where uh, some of these real estate platforms, if you can bring both large uh, pools uh, of capital for debt financing alongside the equity, that kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because that's sort of one of the key drivers for being able to scale that business quickly. You can actually make a lot of money off of the equity if you're also providing the debt. So there's certain circumstances like that. And as you see technology seep itself into other industries over time, you'll probably see a bit more of that. But, you know, whether it's going to be one monolithic funds that can provide all of that, that's a really complex organizational issue, it's going to be really hard. There was this big conversation about debt this past week. I don't know if you guys saw on Twitter. Alex Danko had this medium, this blog post about venture debt. Do you guys follow this at all? Is that a viable option? Is that something that's going to become a lot more popular for founders? Um, I, I kind of referenced it a little bit earlier in the conversation that because there's so much data now coming off yeah. of these companies, you can kind of underwrite them in a, in a unique way. I would actually say unequivocally, yes, you will see more of that happening. Yeah. Whether it becomes a huge thing and starts like taking share away from doing equity financings, I think it's too early for us yeah. to tell. 
uh, because a lot of these models are still very, very early trying to get figured out. Yeah. I think another thing, these things and things like ClearBank or ClearBank are bringing up is basically the question, what's the role for venture capital? Like what, what is the proper scope for what venture should be doing? Should it be just taking technological risk? Should it be as expansive as it's been to date? Do you have a point of view? Ultimately, venture capital describes a very, very wide array of investing strategies. If we look at NEA's healthcare venture capital practice and our NEA uh, tech practice as an example, there's a lot of differences in the way that we evaluate companies and the way that we structure investments and what we look for. So I think venture capital is already um, super broad. One of the challenging things about uh, venture capital over the last decade is so many new business models have been created. Sometimes it can be really challenging for us to figure out, hey, what is the right framework for understanding? What's uh, uh, the appropriate amount of capital to provide? What should the market um, look like? Um, and so a lot of times we'll sort of take, oh, you know, in software, we invested, you know, 20 million in a company that's doing X million in revenue. Well, now this company in a different category is also doing X million in revenue. Should we give them the same, the same amount of money? And I think that's hard because every category has a different loss ratio in terms of the number of companies that succeed and fail, a different uh, ultimate potential in terms of what the company's size can be and a different capital intensity to it. And I think those are sort of the factors that all can be sort of determined by uh, the structures that uh, VCs typically invest in, um, in terms of the percentage of the company they take and um, how preferences work. So I think it can all be solved within uh, venture capital. But like, I would say that you know, the product for consumer internet or e-commerce, you could think of it as an extremely different product than even for enterprise software and certainly for healthcare. So I think, you know, venture capital, very wide aperture, but let's recognize that we've, we're already sort of fitting different products into the same sort of structures. Yeah. This is near and dear to my heart because I focus a bit more at kind of the mid and later stages, but what are the risks you're taking if you're doing a series C or D versus an A or B? I mean, there's no business model risk at that point. Um, it's really more around, you know, is the market size large enough uh, for this company to continue to scale and scale and scale? If it's an enterprise software company, it's kind of a formula at that point. It's for every dollar in, for every salesperson we hire, we know we're going to get this level of output. A formula like that sounds to me like that could be fixed by something like a merchant cash advance or some sort of structure that sounds a bit like that because of the reliability of it or the expected reliability. So like we could see things like that start to pop up as people start to think, you know, maybe equity financing for my Series C doesn't make sense. Maybe I have to make the trade off of growing a little bit slower. But if I maintain more ownership as the CEO, I'll be happier with that. So I think what you just heard is. No, there's nothing that venture capitalists shouldn't invest in. <laughs> we want the latitude to invest in everything. <laughs> so uh, compare Code2 and General Catalyst a little bit. Like, will they, like you mentioned, they're doing it because it's, it's the core, both of them. So what, what is the core that General Catalyst is, is leveraging to go late stage? And what was the core that Code2 is leveraging to go early stage? And do they become competitors at, at some point? And not, not those two firms specifically, but just broader, like hedge funds going early, um, and, and venture capital firms going late. I would say we're not seeing it happen in a broader sense yet. So, but it might happen. Possibly. If, if it ends up being a rousing success for Co2, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, you will have people start to try and, um, uh, utilize the same strategy. 
the core at GC is it's we're a connected firm. It's the relationships that you get from that from the early stage practice that sort of feed itself up into the other parts of our yeah. business that we've been building over time. And that's sort of what we value. That's what we care a lot about. And that's what we think could give us an advantage for later stage companies as well. At Code 2 and firms like that, they're very good at relationships as well. It's just that they're starting, the initial starting point for the relationship has historically been much later. I sort of always say this, you go to a CEO's wedding, you'll see the seed investors there right in the front row or as a part of the wedding party and the Series C investor doesn't even get invited. <laughs> right? It's just a different relationship you have by the time a company starts to scale. And um, you know, we can argue whether that's good or bad. It's just it is what it is. And so, you know, being able to move earlier and build the stronger earlier relationships and being alongside them when you're taking the most risk for that organization could be an advantage for you over time. Yeah. I would say that, um, you know, at NEA where we have the same team effectively both do early and late, we see some pretty unique advantages on both sides. Um, with these early stage companies, we have the credibility to say, Hey, we have a pretty good sense of what the next couple of stages of investors are looking for, which is why Maybe you're not thinking about prioritizing your financial infrastructure, but trust us, you know, it's important. And so it allows us to have a perspective that perhaps uh, uh, that company wouldn't have otherwise at such an early stage. And then at the late stage, you know, one of the most interesting things about this last decade is companies are getting big faster than ever before. And so we're putting... $500 million, billion-dollar valuations on companies that are sometimes only two or three years old. And so um, – and and no matter what the valuation uh, is on a company, um, sure, maybe uh, uh, the venture capital community is valuing them like a public company. They're still a two-year-old company. And so – uh, NEA versus perhaps a traditional growth investor who is very aware that uh, typically they invest in 10-year-old companies that or uh, companies that are just about to go public, that there's a lot more infrastructure to be built and a lot of different things can go wrong. So a lot of times what we find in these two-year-old companies is that their market is changing, their business is changing, their team is changing super, super fast. And our that's where our lens as early stage investors is really helpful. It's like, hey guys, I get it. Yeah, I know that uh, your company is valued a lot right now. And so the expectations are super high, but we're still patient. You know, we still know that company building is really hard and you're only a couple years into it and there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of team building to do. So I, I personally have seen a lot of benefit in having that aperture of um, both early and late. I'm still waiting for that unicorn seed round to happen. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. You're going to see the billion valuation on a seed round. I got to imagine that we'll see it eventually. ICOs had that sort of craziness. <laughs> yeah. To it. It is interesting because, you know, NEA and General Catalyst are like platforms, you know, franchises effectively that have kept quality high across, across the stack for, for many years. There's a number of other great firms that have chosen not to go as big and, and stay more traditional. That's, you know, a benchmark maybe first round, USV, you could probably need a number that have sort of stuck to their knitting. I mean, they've expanded, but uh, stuck to their knitting in, or aren't as going as big, I have air quotes, as as your respective firms. I think GC, like rel- relatively recently, I feel like has even in the last five years, like elevated significantly the the ambitions. I'm curious if you think that, or how do you think about that? Between the, what, what separates the firms that choose to go big between, besides the firms that choose to go small? And like, I'm curious if a firm like Kleiner, which is sort of known for having the top spot brand-wise and maybe falling off for a few years, um, and, and now is on, on the upsurge again. But I'm actually curious, did they, for example, if they'd gone as big as General Catalyst, maybe their late stage practice 
might have taken off in a way that maybe Kotu's early stage venture practice takes off and it sort of diversifies a little bit so that if one of, if their early stage fell off, they could diversify, they could, you know, uh, rest on their laurels of the late stage success. But I actually wonder if they, if they credit their, their downfall in air quotes to, to diversifying too much. They, they had a late stage practice. They had a healthcare practice. Etc. Um, it's laughing. Um, yeah. I, um, yeah. Is that I'm, I'm laughing because I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to give an answer while making no comment on any other venture capital firm. <laughs> please, please. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so what I would say is, you know, uh, again, um, especially um, at NEA where lots of people view us as this, you know, amazing institution, this massive platform four decades old, I think uh, it's really important to remember that there's still just a very few leaders at any of these places. And and me as a pretty young investor at NEA, I still have a great relationship with Dick Kramlick, who's one of our founders, still have a great relationship with Peter Barris, who's our former managing general partner. And I bring up those names because at the end of the day, the DNA is set by just a few leaders of any of these platforms. And the decision to uh, go bigger or go smaller or shift into different strategies really comes down to sort of the the leaders of a firm, those individuals, those human humans expressing themselves as investors um, more more than anything else. I don't think that there are many firms who look at a whiteboard and say, all right, you know, mathematically, how do we sort of optimize income or um, impact? I think what we see is that the best investors view investing as an expression of themselves and a way to express their creativity, which is why we've seen so many firms unfold in in different ways. Yeah, I'd say that the the way Amit put it was is probably the best, and that it comes down to the leaders of the firm uh, use the word ambition, like what their ambitions are, and how they want to express their investments, approaches, and strategies, and what they think is best longer term for the firm itself as well, in terms of you know continuing to build and compound upon the brands that you know they spent decades building uh, over time. So I would say that's probably the primary, you know, driving factor, but the history of firms having done it successfully is pretty thin, right? It's kind of where it's more frontier territory at this point in time. And so you're taking risk in doing it. Um, there's a lot of organizational building that needs to happen. Um, you need to start thinking about your processes, different formalizing things, adding bureaucracy is yeah. sort of a natural part of that. And a lot of early stage partnerships, they do this because they don't like bureaucracy. So there's a lot of things you need to be comfortable with as you evolve your firm and change it. Um, but, you know, whoever can figure out how to do it correctly, I think will have a large platform that will have advantages that will continue to compound for decades after this. Yeah. So it's worth taking a shot. And I think really what it comes down to is are the founders and senior leaders of a VC firm excited to mentor and build their own teams and uh, groom those teams. And Kyle and I both started in this industry quite young. And uh, I can't speak for Kyle, but I certainly benefited from an attitude uh, within NEA um, of, hey, we really want to expose you to a lot to help you 
grow from within. Uh, I think that's a skill set in and of itself. We talked about skill sets of different stages, but there's also specific skill sets of keeping a firm smaller or, or smaller or bigger. Certainly NEA has chosen to be bigger. And one of the things that we're best at is uh, grooming talent. You know, Rick Yang is our most recent general partner, started as an associate in uh, 2007. And uh, I, I take a lot of pride in our associate program now. And uh, because Rick and others like myself have gone all the way from associate to partner, we put a lot of pride into investing in that next generation as well. So that's one of the things that I think is really special about um, NEA. And one of the things I'm most proud of is it's not just a place where we invest in founders. We also invest in our own investing team. Yeah, that's awesome. And so let's pretend we're having this conversation in 3030. Uh, and I'm asking you, about you, you, you how, or 2030. <laughs> you can see where my brain is. 2030 uh, is NEA and General Catalyst more or less the same, but, but just much bigger or is it some radically different like offerings or institutions or cause it, it, I'm, not, I'm not an expert in NEA, but I, I feel like for NEA 2020 to 2010, is, is it been just following a sort of a, a path and just growing sort of appropriately versus like radically, you know, divergent paths? You know, I think we have a lot of really interesting conversations internally about what the future should look like. And, um, uh, I think great, uh, there's a certain quality of great leaders of a VC firm and great founders where they're always constantly responding to markets. So it's a really hard yeah. question to answer because I think there's always a chance that any organization that's really skilled will pivot really quickly. Um, so, and we certainly talk all the time about how do we improve our business and, um, talk about lots of interesting ideas, but it's just really hard to say what the future is going to look like. I'm laughing a little bit because that is almost word for word the question I always ask companies when I'm <laughs> in my first meeting with their CEO. Um, so it's hit me in the right spot. Um, yeah, so when I typically ask that question, what I'm trying to get at is sort of like, what's the, the next act that you can't do today, but once you've sort of nailed what you're doing today, you can sort of build on top of and that unlocks new potential for your business. I think for us, there's a lot of dimensions that we can move into. And as long as we nail what we're doing today, there's a dimension of international moving into other countries. Cause I mentioned this earlier, there's brilliant companies being built everywhere around the globe. It's moving into other asset classes. It's moving into later stages, even beyond what we're currently doing today. All those are fair game. It's those aren't on the current roadmap, but who knows, right? Like as long as you continue to maintain that core relationship and, and that core advantage over time, these are possibilities. It's just organizationally really hard. It's complex. Uh, it's going to require a lot of time and effort and probably a lot of false starts too. So yeah, we'll see. Yeah. The, uh, I want to transition a little bit into a, a topic, uh, uh, Ahmed, that you've been thinking quite a bit about, uh, in terms of an investing perspective is, is the food sector. Yeah. Um, so why don't you talk about, uh, your evolution and how you, how you got excited about it? Where's the white space? Where, where are you looking at? What's your request for startups? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd say that one of the really interesting things about being a consumer investor over the last, um, eight years is how much more physical the whole category has gotten. And food has been really a core part of that. Um, I think the last, uh, cycle of companies, you know, Facebook, Google, Twitter, et cetera, were very, very lightweight software products. And I think it's really exciting that founders, um, and are, are creating now, um, not just to attack 
software screens, either a mobile screen or desktop screen, but just the entire world. And that's super, super cool. And food is a great example of that. Um, what I think is so amazing is um, I remember uh, meeting with one of the very first meal delivery companies back in uh, 2012 and thinking, wow, this is such an interesting category and uh, problem. And uh, it's such a big market. The repeat rate is so high. So much is being spent on this category. There's a lot of ability to do things here and the way that we eat um, could change quite dramatically. Um, you know, since then, I would sort of make um, a couple observations. The first is that food and investing in food is not just one category. Uh, there's um, every layer of the value stack, literally everything from a seed planted into the ground to like the fork being stuffed into your mouth is changing. So everything from alternative proteins to the way that the food is constructed to the way that it's delivered to you. Um, um, there's, there's innovation up and down that value stack. And I think we could have an interesting conversation just about where within food we would want to invest. The second thing I would say is that if we actually look at the dollars invested in food versus the dollars out, it's been a much riskier category than say, you know, enterprise software where the total dollars um, that are spent on enterprise software is uh, less than the dollars invested in food, but the returns uh, for investors and the market caps have been greater. And like, I think one of the things that I would emphasize both for investors and founders is, hey, when we're thinking about market size, a lot of times everyone looks at revenue and points to revenue as uh, and the sum of revenues in the space as the market. But I think the more appropriate thing to do, particularly in a market like this where the margins are a little bit lower, is to look at net the net income market size, um, how much is uh, actually being accumulated in profit for any category. So not what are restaurants making on the top line, but what are restaurants making in profit after all their costs. And also looking at the uh, the uh, market size from a market cap or enterprise value perspective. So if you're thinking about opening up a quick service restaurant, don't look at the billion spent at quick service restaurants, look at the market cap of all the public quick service restaurants. And I think that'll give us a better sense of the scale that we're talking about, because I think that when I look at so many uh, investors who've invested in companies um, in this, you know, it's actually been three or four cycles now over the last seven or eight years investing in food. Um, I think a lot of those things might get missed a little bit, um, but it's a very interesting category. If I was going to sort of pick uh, a couple of areas that are interesting, um, one is just thinking about convenience. And I think there's a lot of money spent on convenience. And then the other is content. So actually the quality of the food itself, which I think has components of it that are just about flavor and tastiness. And then there's another that's got sort of a nutritional component to it as well. Um, but I think, you know, content and convenience are two ways, two, two ways I would think about um, our, the way we think about food. You must be a real glutton for punishment. <laughs> you think about food all the time and you're putting yourself through intermittent fasting. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, food itself is a category. I mean, listen, we all eat Right. It, it is a large profit pool globally. There are, there is a lot of moving pieces right now of things changing. And I think fundamentally what's driving a lot of that is a shift in consumer preferences. So people wanting convenience, people wanting healthy, um, people wanting it available uh, much more widely. Simplest way to think about it is now I can go home and sit on my couch and fire up DoorDash and order whatever I want and have it delivered right to my door within an hour. It's kind of an amazing product. 
the thing that hasn't quite yet been figured out on that front is how to do that uh, with the significant amount of profitability without passing that cost on to the consumer. Then the there would, it would require innovation on transportation and all variety of things that are a bit what I would call lagging at this point. And we talk about drone delivery, sort of taking the labor cost out of food, probably at least what, 10 years away from, from that actually becoming a reality. I've actually focused a lot of my time around what I would sort of call full stack opportunities. So people trying to reinvent the full experience, whether it's an online grocery or sort of, I think what, what cloud kitchens are doing is pretty interesting as well that are sort of being more holistic about pulling costs out of the system so that you can compete effectively with a food system that has spent, you know, decades and decades since post world war II, you know, building itself out and doing it the most cost effective way possible. Does this mean you're bearish on companies like Instacart or Rappi or DoorDash or how, how do you evaluate them or see the? I, I would say from a product perspective, uh, those are great companies. And I, and I use Instacart, DoorDash, Uber Eats, you, you name it on a pretty regular basis. Um, I do worry about uh, the ability to access a more cost sensitive consumer over time because they are adding a lot of cost to the overall system. Um, would I say that I'm bearish on them? No, all those are growing really, really quickly. They're proving customer demand. Unit economics, from what I understand, are improving across the board. I have not invested in, in it. Yeah. I guess what would you need to believe to have it, to have wanted to invest here? I think what we need to believe is an ability to get those goods to the end consumer in a more efficient, cost-effective way than they currently are today. And um, I, I was always, you know, when Uber Eats launched, was this five years ago, four years mm-hmm. ago? I always felt like they had an advantage to do something that some of the other platforms don't around stacking just because they had so much availability of drivers on the road and so much demand on their platform that, you know, one driver could go and do five drop-offs within an hour and they could use that labor more efficiently, which lowers the cost for any individual of those deliveries. I'm not sure if that's you know proving itself out at this point, but there are people rebuilding models to GoPuff as an example that um, has a bit of a different delivery model and can get much more utilization out of the delivery people. Now they're not doing perishable foods; they're doing some you know more convenience store type items, but they're rebuilding the 7-Eleven experience for an online world from the bottom up, and they're seeing success doing that. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that, um, speaking of GoPuff, I think I have an investment in a company called Stockwell, which is doing something similar where the food is on premises. And so, you know, one of the arguments that we make or one of the reasons we were excited to invest is, hey, you know, every customer is certainly saying, I want it faster and I deserve it faster. And that's not going to change. Um, I think what we got excited about with Stockwell is, well, actually, um, if it's already there, then that's significantly faster than waiting 30 minutes to an hour for uh, food or product to consume to arrive. And it, it's actually, uh, uh, from a unit economic perspective, more viable as well. Um, so that's what we thought was interesting about that one particular investment. But, you know, Kyle, what, what I would say... I, I, what I would like to see, and I think what is now being forced upon us by the public markets is, you know, are we looking at the right metrics when we're investing in uh, this food category? And I think um, one of the things that happened, you know, seven or eight years ago when this food category started coming up was uh, venture capitalists would apply the model they were using for software investing to food and said, hey, high growth. And if you're burning a lot of money, you don't really need to worry. Ten about times it. revenue, right? Exactly. And, <laughs> now and now I, twenty times. And I think the reality is that, right? Yeah, those, the 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 valuations on the software side have only gone higher. But but I I think uh, 
given the margin profile and given the way that these companies are so physical, we've needed to have different frameworks. Um, and so for uh, my companies that have a physical component to them, um, Block Renovation and Stockwell, in addition to looking at traditional metrics, we actually look at return on invested capital. We look at the internal rate of return on projects. We look at the net present value of projects that we do. And um, I think that uh, we're just getting started with founders attacking the physical world. And I think we're going to need materially different frameworks than were used seven or eight years ago for understanding what those companies should be aiming for. And that's been one of the challenges is that thinking about what the goalposts are. Um, I don't think we as an investment community have actually quite figured that out. And I don't think the founders have figured that out yet. And it's a bit of a conversation between the, the two of us. But I think we're going to see that become better. And we will see some excellent physically oriented businesses that crush it in the public markets and become amazing companies. But I think we need to do a bit of a reorientation right now. Yeah. I guess today I've been Amit Mukherjee from NEA and Kyle Doherty of General Catalyst. Guys, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having us. It was great. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.